Hello everyone, this is Randy Kim, host and producer of the Bunmi Chronicles podcast. Welcome to the second season. For this week's episode, I spoke with my good friend, Von Nguyen from Atlanta. She splits her time between there and Chicago. She serves as an immigration attorney and is deeply involved in her work with immigration rights, Asian Pacific Islander American advocacy, and other social justice related work. I've known Vaughn through her work with Asians American Advancing Justice in Chicago and when she was a volunteer ESO tutor to elderly Vietnamese immigrants through the Vietnamese Association of Illinois. Her work on educating community organizers and with immigrants about their rights, especially for those facing deportations, are critical in a time where ICE raids have accelerated and turned aggressive. She shared these experiences with me for this episode and spent some time talking about her own upbringing and the struggles she faced in dealing with assimilation. I hope you get a a chance to listen to her stories in this episode. In the meantime, I want to send a special shout out to Lawrence and Argyle for sponsoring this second season. Be sure to check them out on social media or at www.lawrenceandargyle.com. Thank you. Hello, this is Randy from the Bun Me Chronicles podcast. I am very excited to introduce to you uh, my good friend, Von Nguyen. So, Von, how are you today? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So, I knew you uh, a couple of years ago, I'd say mm-hmm. within the last five years, uh, yeah. through the Asian American spaces, and you've been working with Asians American Advancing Justice in Immigration Advocacy. You're an immigration attorney. You've been doing a lot of advocacy in that work. Uh, what I can say in the general sense that immigration attorney work is not just working with clients and their families, but you're also educating the community. You're educating the organizations uh, that work with immigrants. So it is a work that is often uh, a rapid, uh, overwhelming <laughs> work that you take on. And, uh, you know, being in the immigration movement, like at one point, seeing the work that mm-hmm. attorneys do, having to work on these cases and then having to educate uh, the communities about it and, and to get the support is very challenging. So before I get more into that, I wanted to uh, have you introduced yourself? Yeah. Um, so my name is Vun. I'm, I identify as Vietnamese American. I myself am an immigrant. Um, I also identify as queer. Um, and yeah, I think, you know, that was a great summary to some of the work that I do. Um, I often think that my work spreads across different areas. Um, by day, I am an, an immigration attorney. Um, but I also see my role in trying to facilitate community work. Um, so even when the, in my professional role that may not have offered me that, um, I've sought out opportunities, uh, particularly with Vietnamese American com- organizations uh, and communities. And that's sort of how I met you and your mom. Um, yeah. So sort of in my off time, I do a lot of interpretation work, uh, translation work. I'm interested in sort of having conversations, particularly in the Vietnamese American community about some of these issues. And so I think volunteering opportunities um, outside of my professional role as an, as an attorney also provide for that. Thank you for that. Um, 
going off from what you're talking about, uh, when you met my mom, you uh, yeah. you were volunteering for the Vietnamese Association of Illinois, VAI. Mm -hmm. And yeah. I remember my mom needed like company. She needed someone to talk to, especially uh, having other elder peers at the time. So mm -hmm. I'm very thankful uh, for you to help bring that space, you know, for people like my mom. But also what I've noticed is that part of you working with the elders and with new immigrants who've been in, uh, in Chicago in recent years taking ESL classes, you're mm -hmm. also helping them to not only speak the language as, survive, as a way to survive and navigate uh, do the everyday life of being in America, but also to be civically engaged, to be aware of what is going on. And I feel like that work connects very well to the work that you've been doing in uh, immigration, uh, immigration rights. So mm -hmm. going back, um, let's so going back, um, we're looking at the theme of 1975. So mm -hmm. what does that year signify for you? Yeah, um, well, I wasn't alive at that time. <laughs> Uh, to start off with that. But I think growing up, I had heard so many stories from my family about, you know, what happened on April 27th of 1975. Um, they refer to it in Vietnamese as Yai Phong, which when I was growing up, I didn't know what that meant, right? I just knew that like Yai Phong was referring to that moment where the North had entered Saigon and what that meant. Um, I would say that across my family, um, different people have reacted differently to that time. Um, my one uncle who was actually on a boat outside the city of Saigon, he was like working on a boat, just like cleaning the deck, um, was when he says that he saw the sort of the military coming into Saigon. And at that point, people on the boat knew that it was time to leave. Mm -hmm. um, and so he left Vietnam and became a refugee, went to the Philippines and Guam, and then eventually to the U.S. Um, but he doesn't talk about that time. You know, these were stories that my grandma would tell me or my mom would tell me. Um, but 1975 is, I think, a very sensitive subject for him, even to today. Um, and it's interesting because my cousin, who is his daughter, recently told me that her son was born very close um, to the date in which he left Vietnam. Mm. And for the first time, he actually commented on it to say, like, this is the first year in which I felt happy, you know, thinking about the, this month and like what it means. Right, because like we celebrate, we sort of observe the significance of the day every year since then. Um, but for him, I've never heard him personally speak about it, but that was something that my cousin did share with me. Um, and I think for the rest of my family, you know, I, I often think about my mom who was 10 years old at the time um, and what that means for her. And, and sort of trying to understand where our differences are, particularly, you know, I myself have been having been like uh, 1.5 generation growing up in the U.S. As I was growing up, there was a lot of struggles. Um, but now that I'm older, I think I'm able to reflect on that time period and what it means to grow up during wartime, but I think also post-war, um, which a lot of folks don't talk about um, as to what it means to really recover in that time. And, yeah. and I think it also tries, it, in some ways, it also explains why Vietnamese Americans are so political in the way that they are, too, um, because so much of that time shaped their immigration history, uh, but it's also shaped the way that they look at the U.S. 
it, it's it's an interesting uh, perspective and experience that you share. So thank you for sharing that. 1975 into 2020, it's 45 years. Any of the adults who are living, in, a person who is 20 years old leaving uh, Vietnam that year is now 65 years old. That's yeah. technically retirement age. And it also tells you that the stories that we hear and still haven't heard from, time is not exactly on our side of our community. And this is something that I learned from Helen Zia when she spoke uh, a year ago when she wrote the book, uh, The Last Blood Out of Shanghai. I don't know if you read that book. It is a really, it's really sad. It, it, it's yeah. just, it tells you about the Nanjing massacre of during the pre, around the World War II era. Mm -hmm. And there were a few stories that were, documenting that particular genocide and so it was like the final opportunity to get these stories before yeah. they're gone and so I think when you talk about your uncle who um, hasn't told you personally but there's there's still more to uncover I'm still mm. uncovering more stories yeah. uh, about my own family that I thought I've heard but I'm still starting to hear mm -hmm. more of them and then you know, time is ticking and that has clearly been on my mind. And, and I know it's been on, on a lot of uh, Vietnamese, Southeast Asian folks' mm -hmm. mind when their parents are aging. The millennial, the millennials like ourselves, our parents are at retirement ages. So yeah. to hear these stories, to know our own history, um, this is definitely the time. So do you feel that pressure to learn these stories? Uh, or do you feel like this is not that you're still kind of processing that you're not ready to hear the rest of the other stories. Yeah, no, I, I think that's an interesting point that you bring up. I mean, in the last couple of years in particular, as my grandma is getting older um, and sort of losing a little bit of her, you know, her ability to tell stories in the same, with the same energy that, that she's used to. Um, yeah, there is this sort of yearning to want to record, right. And like take down because, there, it isn't put down anywhere. Um, but it's also interesting to see how folks in my family have also developed in the way that they, they're thinking about the war, right? I think, um, you know, one of the first books that I read that like sort of changed the way that I had heard the framing of the war itself was The Sympathizer, right? Where there's yes. like multiple points of view that it's being offered. And I remember having these conversations with my mom um, and even, um, you know, T-Boy's book, uh, The Best We Could Do, right, illustrating all these things, um, taking those opportunities to use books as a way to also have discussions in my family, right, that like felt a little bit yes. lighthearted instead of just being like, oh, tell me what happened in 1975, mother, you know, but to, right. but to say like, hey, you know, I was reading this book and they're mentioning this time in history. Right. Can you tell me about, you know, what that was like for you? Yeah. Um, I remember there was a scene in The Best We Could Do where there's like an infamous picture of one of the soldiers holding a gun up to someone's head. Mm. And I remember showing it to my aunt and the minute that she looked at it, she was just like, I don't want to see that. Like I had lived through that, you know, like mm -hmm. I'd seen it then. Mm -hmm. And that wasn't something that I was able to like piece together for myself that like mm -hmm. these things, these pictures that I'm looking at were things that they saw in real time, mm -hmm. right? And like what that means, like what, what type of impression that that's left on them. Mm. Um, but it, it's hard to sort of like find the way in, right, to having to, those conversations with my family um, and even other folks in the community, right? Like, I mean, you, you brought up the, the ESL and the citizenship classes. Folks weren't able to have discussion about what that, what 
like civic duty met for them personally. Mm. And so I felt that like, even as a volunteer, wanting to have those conversations with people, right? Like when we were learning about genocide or when we were learning about wars, having people speak about their direct experience mm. in the context of what it means to be Vietnamese Americans and not just like the U.S. history alone. Yeah. Um, and I think it like really opened up the doors for people to, to share a lot of really great stories. Um, yeah. So now I'm also sort of similar to what you're doing to the podcast where trying to figure out like, how do we take down those stories, you know, so that they're not, yeah. you know, we don't lose them. Yeah. Cause I know when Ocean Vong, uh, mm-hmm. I saw him speak about a few years ago, he is a queer Southeast Asia, a queer Vietnamese uh, poet uh, for those who don't know who he is. And mm-hmm. I remembered asking him, I don't know if you were there when, when he had his book, uh, I think mm-hmm. I'm, I'm losing my memory. I think it's a night sky. I, I have to, I have to remember yeah, what the book was. Book? It was his poetry mm-hmm. book. Yes. Yeah. And I asked him the question, how is it that you were able to have your parents trust you with their story? And his first comments were, and I'll never forget it. He said to ask them is considered betrayal because you're asking them to relive their trauma, something that you personally did not go through. Why are you making us have mm-hmm. to go through it when we're raising you? And that hit me very hard because I used to have that guilt of this. I want to write about my family story, but mm-hmm. I just felt like I can't do the story because this is an experience that they have. And I feel like yeah. I'm exploiting uh, exploiting them and so that was something that had prevented me from you know sharing mm-hmm. up these from yeah. getting their stories and uh and you know and what really what he really touched on was that that his mom did not know how to read or write and mm-hmm. so for her to you know tell the story it's like it doesn't stay in the grave with her and I think that was there was yeah. a sense of urgency and then just recently unfortunately his mom passes away like oh, no, a few months yeah actually a few months ago wow. so it tells you how critical and how important mm-hmm. that is to learn your story and what it does for you as a person because there are things that we experience as kids that were so not normal among mm-hmm. non-Asian <laughs> yeah. or pr- predominantly white uh predominantly white folks that we grew up with so it it starts to make sense and also at the same time we start to feel a sense of empathy and compassion Mm -hmm. because of understanding the roots of their trauma so having that history does allow us to forgive ourselves but also to forgive you know our uh, family members who had to go through things and that we're not equipped to prepare us for the world that we had to take on so mm-hmm. yeah and I was wondering about your own upbringing like uh, where did you grow up and what was your upbringing like with school and and the way your parents had uh, raised you and your siblings yeah um, so I I was born in Saigon Vietnam um, I immigrated when I was six years old and then my family came to Allentown Pennsylvania mm. and so that's sort of where I grew up where I went to school um, and the community itself is very diverse. Um, but when I immigrated, I came with my mom and my brother and two other families. Um, but I, I think, I think it's, 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 it's interesting to think about a lot of the stereotypes, right? And the way that families are constructed in the United States. Um, and I often think that my family didn't look like that. Um, my mom worked a lot. You know, my aunts and uncles all worked a lot. We all lived in one house. It was 
primarily my grandmother uh, and my uncle who took care of us. Um, but I grew up in a household with a lot of cousins. Um, a lot of them were around my age. Um, and so it, it, my memories of those times is that it was really fun, you know, even though we were all cramped in a very small space. Um, my uncle was very strict, the, the one who came uh, in 1975 when he was a refugee himself, I think. Um, there's moments where he shared experiences about being made fun of because of his accents. And mm. so I have sort of like very visceral memories of him teaching us how to pronounce words mm. and just emphasizing, right? Like you need to get rid of that accent and you need mm. to like emphasize yeah. these words and, you know, don't chew with your mouth open, right? Like be respectful, keep your elbows off the table. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So he sort of shaped the way that, you know, we all acted. Um, and he was also a disciplinarian, um, very strict on us, um, mm. you know, sort of emphasized uh, school. My mom wasn't as much. And so I think it's interesting when people talk about tiger moms, where I just think yeah. my mom wasn't really like that. I mean, yes, she wanted me to do well in school yeah. and, you know, encourage uh, schooling, but it was also hard for her because um, I, I do remember up to a certain point um, because she uh, only finished the ninth grade and then afterwards mm-hmm. because of the war um, mm-hmm. she couldn't or post-war she couldn't continue going to school um, you know there were a lot of things that she couldn't help me with but mm-hmm. definitely you know encouraged me to to do well um, even though you know when I graduated from high school I didn't know that I wanted to go to college um, I just didn't see a point in it I think high school was hard in that um, because it was sort of this mixed urban environment, um, you could see um, that there were more security guards present in school. Like mm. They were sort of cracking down on a lot of things. Um, yeah, there was like a lot of zero tolerance policies um, that made it very difficult. But yeah, I grew up in a pretty diverse environment. I had friends of different races and learned from different folks. I think the... I think what, what a lot of my friends will tell you is that I'd always been sort of secure in my Asian American identity. Like I was very defensive of it. Mm. Um, I didn't have any Asian American friends growing up. I didn't see like Asian American professionals growing up. Um, so it's interesting for me when I, when I moved to Philadelphia for college and then I, when I went to mm. Chicago, hearing like the stereotypes of what it means to be Asian Americans, even though it differed so much from my own experiences. Um, but yeah, I think all of that sort of shaped and framed um, my interactions and sort of like the communities that I still yearn for now, uh, which oftentimes mm-hmm. is like low-income communities, people who don't speak English as much, um, because that was the environment that I grew up in. Mm. And going back to like school back in high school, when you were, mm-hmm. the motivation to go to college wasn't very high on your list. How, what was that like uh, telling that to, or did your family know that you were struggling to want to go to college because I know that any immigrant families who put the uh, the onus on higher education to hear their own children say that is devastating. Yeah. Uh, I didn't go through that but I certainly wanted to veer off from what they wanted uh, me mm-hmm. to do and it felt like they had lost a child when I told them that I did not want to pursue <laughs> law. Yeah. Right and so yeah. yeah, and I think it was so difficult. So I'm just thinking to myself mm-hmm. from your experience, what was that like? And, and how did you get to yourself to be motivated to go to school? And what did you end up going into uh, that 
um, that you that you would major in, and was it a a field that you wanted to be in, or was it something that your family imposed on? Hmm. Um, well, I would say that high school was hard for me because my mom was also in a domestic violent relationship um, mm. with my stepfather, and so she and I struggled with that you know i disagreed with a lot of decisions that she was making and i think it also took me away from school right like mm. i you know as soon as i turned 16 i felt like i was entering these like rebellious years where mm. i was like i don't need to conform to you know these stereotypes about asian americans being smart and like you know i did well in school up to that point but just felt like i don't have anything to prove to anyone right um and it just felt like school like I wasn't learning anything in school. It, it became just a very contentious relationship um, between myself and teachers. And, and I, I think a huge part of that is because of what I was dealing with at home. But mm -hmm. teachers weren't reaching out to me in that way, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, but I would also say that even though my family was disappointed that I didn't want to go to college, they're very working class. You know, most of my aunts and uncles worked in sewing factories. And so I remember my mom's response was being like, okay, well, if you don't want to go to college, you have to go to work, you know, like just find a job. Mm. And so it wasn't like a long, like long battle between us. I think she was very much like, okay, if you don't want to go, then, you know, go find a job. Um, and then the first year I, I was at home working and then also I was like waitressing um, and then also going to a nearby college. Um, and then I just realized I couldn't live with my mom and college was the way out. Yeah. <laughs> uh, like gave me the opportunity to be able to go somewhere a little bit further. Um, that's when I went to Philadelphia. Um, at the time I didn't, you know, I don't know much about, I didn't know much about college. I didn't know about like majors. Um, I think like every year I filed my financial aid application late because I had no idea that I was supposed to do it. You know, like mm -hmm. I didn't think about paying for college. Right. I just thought that you know, like high school, you just show up the first day, but then yeah. you get that bill for the first semester, um, not knowing what to do with it. And I had other cousins who, who went to college, but, you know, we didn't talk about these experiences. Um, you know, you don't typically talk about money, right? So they, their parents could have paid for their schools and I wouldn't have known it, uh, but my mom couldn't have done it. And she was like, if you want to go to school, right, like figure that out on your own. If you want to go find a job and do that um but I think at that point she pretty much took a step back and let me do whatever I wanted to do um yeah and I I majored in political science because I knew a friend who majored in political science and we would have like political conversations and about like philosophy right and like these big mm -hmm. ideas um and so I thought yeah that works <laughs> that's all it took you know was that one friend be like oh this is a good idea um yeah. they're in it so why can't i and, yeah, yeah. Um, and also i get the impression and i know this is common among a lot of uh refugee children is that children meaning us never had the opportunity to fully experience childhood in, in a way and part of it's because we had to be the adults to our parents whether yeah. it's having to help them pay their bills look over documents and I feel like that was in a way something that kind of set you up for what you have been doing for the past several mm -hmm. years helping um, older adults being able to navigate uh, this and I feel like it goes back to our childhood and and I know yeah. growing up for me I was very resentful of mm. having to 
to do adult things because I was mm -hmm. a very shy kid and I yeah. really, really hated having to talk in a phone to a complete yeah. stranger or going to a bank. I really hated it and I couldn't tell you. And I think part of it was my own rebellion towards my parents it's because of that. It, it stemmed from the fact that I was forced to do things that I feel like I shouldn't have to do mm -hmm. and I think when you're talking about school and um, in, in the conflicts that you had with your own family and then having to navigate college on your own it, it's frustrating because like why wasn't I given those resources to, mm -hmm. to to be set up for success and I feel like I'm being set up to fail and yeah. this also kind of shows you again the model minority myth that Asian folks and along with black and brown communities don't have that kind of pathway to education and yeah. this is an example I was just talking to one of uh, my guest uh, Tung yesterday and he said mm -hmm. that he left his home at 16 mm -hmm. years old and he went to school but he got through financial aid but he had to do things literally on his own it was just mm -hmm. because yeah. he had to figure it out himself and if had he not gotten financial aid and him being like leaving home before he was 18 his life could have gone in a very wrong direction like mm -hmm. unfortunately like a lot of our community members who fell who fell through the cracks because of mm -hmm. the socioeconomic hardships and what yeah. that has prevented them from getting um so as you were majoring in political science you got into immigration law by that point or were you, like what is it about immigration law that really drew your interest yeah i i don't i don't think it was specifically immigration law i think it was working with immigrant communities um so even in college i was working for a nonprofit organization that did job placements for new immigrants coming into philadelphia um, i also worked at south philly high school where we mentored and like, tutored uh, new students who were coming, a lot of them were Southeast Asian students. There was, there was sort of like an influx of Nepalese students at some point um, because of what was happening in that region. Um, but I think just the experiences of working with immigrants and then, you know, a part of that people are going to tell you their immigration story. Um, and then a lot, of, a lot of that then deals with how can I petition and help my family members come here? And so it was a lot of me looking through documents for people. And so that sort of I think, started the, the interest around um, immigration. But I also would say that, like, I myself am also interested in, like, the environment and elderly care, you know, um, and, like, different parts of the law. But um, I think once you're, like, sort of already wrapped up in an area of law, it's hard to do, you know, to like, jump around to different areas. Um, and immigration, I think, also fulfills a lot of different aspects of people's lives, um, where it's not just immigration that I'm handling with, but there's a lot of family matters involved that we have to understand about folks. Um, understanding like the politics, I'm a huge like political nerd. And so being able to learn about what, what's happening in a country like, that drives people to have to migrate, to have to like escape their country to come to the US is also a huge part of immigration law. Um, and knowing those contexts and knowing that background is also important um, in order to like adequately represent people. Mm. And when you came to Chicago, uh, when did you arrive to Chicago? And uh, I know that you got involved with Asians American Advancing Justice uh, by that mm -hmm. point. Yeah. So Chicago is also a hotbed of immigration 
mm-hmm. issues. Um, yeah. I know like when I was involved as an immigrant rights organizer back in 2012 to 2013, it was my first time really understanding what undocumented what a person what what a person who's undocumented is like and how did they get to that point of being undocumented mm-hmm. and what was the US response to someone who's undocumented. Yeah. Uh, and then as the years have gone on, besides um, someone who's undocumented and then being on DACA, but we also have people in our community members who have legalization through visa, through a green mm-hmm. card, but are actually facing deportations. So mm-hmm. what I've learned the last several years is that the immigration system in America has not been updated, has not been yeah. updated in a way that's humane. And I say this because the last immigration reform was back in 1986. And mm-hmm. that was, I guess, a response, and I could now correct me if I'm wrong, uh, mm-hmm. it was a response to you know the, the Southeast Asian Americans who came to the U.S. It was, would you say that, that, that 1986 was a reflection of that? Um, I'm trying to remember. 1996? Uh, 1986. Oh, okay. That was like the, uh, yeah. the last uh, humane, I guess, immigration reform. In 1996. Oh, like the amnesty uh, bill under Reagan? Is that what you're yes, referring to? Yes, the yeah. amnesty mm-hmm. bill. And then 1996, uh, under yeah. Clinton, it was a reversal. It restricted immigration. They put in uh, yeah. new laws to uh, limit uh, legalization and also would then uh, start the uh, process of deporting uh, mm-hmm. folks yeah. if they fall short of legalization. So yeah. so yeah, I would definitely say like in the past 20 plus years since the 96 bill, nothing has happened to, mm-hmm. uh, to have folks who are coming in either from Korea to Guatemala to Poland. What does legalization look like? And and I feel like being in the, in the position that you are as an immigration attorney, you're dealing with so many loopholes. And a lot of these loopholes basically end in with large potholes that you fall into because mm-hmm. who, what is the correct way to get legalization? What is the correct way to get in America, to stay in America? And I was wondering when you first started doing this, uh, doing immigration attorney work, when you started working on your first case, what was going through your mind as you're navigating these <laughs> inconsistent loopholes? Yeah. Um, well, I would say that I came to Chicago after graduating from law school um, as a legal fellow with Advancing Justice Chicago. Um, and it's interesting because my, my sort of my start in my legal career came from a policy advocacy position. Um, so before I was doing the legal services aspect of it, it came from a policy role. Um, I wanted to come to Chicago in particular um, because of the, the organizing that was there. Right? There's a long history of organizing in Chicago. Um, prior to that, throughout law school, when I was working at firms or um, in, even with different nonprofit organizations, it felt like I really wasn't making a change to anything. You know, a lot of legal work is just cranking out cases one after another um, without an end in sight. And, and if you're given the opportunity to explain to folks, oh, sorry, that was my dog, um, to be able to explain to folks um, in framing a larger picture of the, the, the situation that they're in, right? Because everybody thinks like, oh, well, my situation is unique. I think nowadays you can 
have you can clearly understand that there's a larger political context that exists outside of you that's sort of creating all these conditions. Um, and so I think when I first started doing cases, I had already had that framing. Um, the policy advocacy work that we did at Advancing Justice Chicago focused a lot on the Chicago police. Um, local law enforcement and the way that the city and the state and sort of what are their roles in protecting immigrants, whereas oftentimes people see immigration law as from a federal perspective, right? Like, how do we change the 1996 laws? How do we um, push for better regulations? But I think in Chicago, it was, it, was, it was unique in that you could target local folks to be able to implement some kind of change. During that time, when I was practicing, Obama was in office. Um, there was still discretion, for example. And so there was a lot of organizing work to be able to pressure the Chicago ICE field office um, you know, to exercise discretion in a lot of these cases. Nowadays, that doesn't exist anymore. Um, but it just goes to show you that immigration law, as rigid as it is, it's also, it has room to, to move in. Um, I think immigration attorneys will will tell you that you know they're able to sort of stealth like be stealthy and navigate their way through this tricky system but the, the end of the day it's still a terrible system to be a part of um, and I think to your point there there's a lot of gaps there's a lot of restrictions on people um, there there are also these sort of like complete bans right where um, for immigration judges or for even for DHS, right? Like certain criminal convictions bar you from certain relief. Um, it bars people from being able to re-enter, to be able to immigrate in the future into the United States. Um, so it's very strict and restrictive in that way too. Um, but it's also to say that I learned so much in Chicago because I was able to, to think creatively about how to move within a very like structured and rigid place. Mm. And also, um, what I was alluding to earlier um, in my introduction of you, you were uh, also educating, like Asians American Advancing Justice being one of them, and also other uh, immigrant-centered organizations in Chicago to talk about these policies, to talk about the deportation, how to protect uh, community members who are facing threats of deportations or figuring out their own legal status. What is that work particularly like? Because there's a different language when you're going into the courtroom and then versus, you know, being out in the community and advocating and also having to translate in a way, because you're already a translator in, from Vietnamese and English language, but then in legal uh, documentation and, and trying to interpret what, um, what the law tells uh, clients and community members. How do you strike that balance and how do you find ways to build that relationship with those community organizations who are seeking your advice? Because I do see that work is so immensely consuming, but mm -hmm. it's also needed because you as an attorney have the, in some ways, the influence to convince a judge and judges, depending what kind of judge they are, mm -hmm. it's, it's a, it's a it's a crapshoot basically. Yeah. But for you, you, who's on the front line and so many other immigration attorneys, how do you, you know, uh, build that relationship with these community organizations? And are they effective in uh, pressuring uh, the judges and uh, mm -hmm. pressuring ICE to release mm -hmm. uh, those under incarceration? Yeah. Um... 
yeah, it, it's, I think it's interesting that you highlight that because I, when I started practicing, I learned a lot about community lawyering in particular, which is a model of um, what it means to be an attorney. Um, but I would say that, that, you know, most folks who work in big firms or, you know, in private practices do not abide by it, right? Um, the, the typical setup is that you pay an attorney right, to take care of your case and then they go and take care of it. And most of the times folks don't know what's happening in their cases. They just sort of show up for court. Um, and I just felt that that wasn't fair to individuals, right? That it's important for folks um, to be able to understand what's happening in the system. As complicated as it is, um, earlier today I was telling you that I was having a rough day. Um, mm -hmm because I was trying to explain a very complicated like legal technicality to someone who then became very frustrated at me, mm -hmm. um, you know, and she just kept saying like, I don't understand. And this person's in detention, right? And so she's saying like, I don't understand right. you. Um, and so to continuously try to figure out like, how do I break down that language um, to be able to explain to folks so that they also feel in control of the situation that they're in. Mm. Um, my approach to being an attorney is that I don't like making decisions for other people. Um, I'll present folks with like an array of different options based on what, what works best for them and their families. And then it's their job to make a decision and then tell me what they want to do in the case. And then that's usually what I take into immigration court. Um, and that's sort of the argument that I'll make for folks. Um, and sometimes that's uncomfortable, you know, there are moments where I disagree with people um, because maybe I myself would not have made that decision. Um, some people also make really risky uh, decisions, but it's their life, right? It's their case. And so I can only follow what it is that they're telling me. Um, but I think that being, working for nonprofit organizations, but like being in proximity to community has really helped um, for me to understand what is, what is the language that's going to get through to people but I think you also have to break it down in different ways. Um, and you can only do that if you actually try it out in front of people, right? So if I'm having a community presentation, um, and community folks are, are very honest with you, right? they'll tell you when like, we don't know what you're talking about, right? Or you're talking way too fast, mm -hmm. you know? And they'll call it out very quickly. Very. Um, but, I, yes. but I also appreciate folks like that, right? Because it's like, I want you to understand, not just, I want you to understand what's individually happening to you, right, in your case, so that you know what decision to make. But I also want you to see a larger political context to what's going on, because that also shapes what's going to happen in immigration court. That's going to shape how the ICE attorney is going to look at these cases. And people have to sort of make connections between their cases and others. Whereas oftentimes, you know, when you're meeting with the attorney, you're only hearing about your case. So it seems as if like this thing that's happening to you is so unique that no one else is experiencing, even though we know that the way that the system is nowadays, right? Like tons of people are being pulled into the immigration system um, that folks just aren't aware of. And every time I like talk to someone new, they're just like, why is this happening to me? And yeah. I think if you're honest with people, it's like, it's the current administration, right? It's the Trump presidency. Um, and, and there's a hierarchy. Yeah, there's a hierarchy yeah, in yeah. language. And there's a hierarchy in language because legal work is rooted in like in this like intelligent, mm -hmm. very specific language that does not that goes over people's heads uh, in most communities and and just just for the average person. I mean, it takes a lot of skill to learn 
the nuances of these languages. And so there is that too, which tells you that it's done on purpose in a way to, yeah, yeah. to make yeah. it very challenging and to give mm -hmm. way for um, to give way for people to be justified into in being incarcerated and then deport uh, then deported. Mm -hmm. um, so how do you strike the balance between advocacy and organizing work and law on a personal mm -hmm. level? Because you're dealing mm -hmm. with family members and you've touched up on it. Uh, you're dealing with the families who are desperate to make these decisions. And I know that you've had to allow them agency to make decisions on their own, what they think is best for their family members. But you know, you're dealing with situations where they're incarceration, they're getting deported. Yeah. Uh, they've had to deal with being assaulted. Unfortunately, there's mm -hmm. been a lot of life-threatening issues. And um, you have yeah. people who have been incarcerated who have health issues mm -hmm. or who are elderly or who are very little. And so how do you work through so many of the inhumanity uh, that... I'm going to rethink this for a moment. How do you process so much of what you've had to witness and to experience as a lawyer and an, as, also as an advocate? Because it is very upsetting. And how do you keep going as, as you're still experiencing the losses? And, you know, we, we look at victories and losses, but, but oftentimes the losses are the ones that really stand out on most days. How do you yeah. work through that? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I try to narrow it down to what is my role, right? My role as the attorney is to deal with the legal side of things. I think as, as much as I'm drawn to like, this, this, you know, providing services to people or doing some of the organizing work, I also know that at the end of the day, what folks are looking to me for is legal expertise. And so the best thing that I can do is just be on top of all the legal stuff. Um, I would highlight that one of the great things about working in Chicago was that there was this great network of organizers and service providers um, and seeing my role as being able to facilitate people through that also, right? So if there's service that, that an individual needs to be able to connect them to that. Um, some, there are limitations as to like the things that I can say and do um, as an attorney um, that don't apply to organizers. And so oftentimes I work closely with organizers to be able to have real conversations, right? I think, you know, there are, there are situations that people are put in where they have to make decisions that's going to be sort of antithetical to what the law is. And I think organizers do a good job of talking people through that, right? To be able to help them navigate and make decisions as to like what makes sense for them um, in ways that I can't have conversations with them. So one of the things is like people working without a work permit, right? I can't legally tell someone, sure, go get a job, right? Um, but I also recognize the reality. People have to work. People have to take care of their families. And so if I can connect them to an organizer to help them sort of weigh the risk, right, and, and figure out how to resolve that for their families, and then also to be able to connect them with a larger support network. Um, a lot of times, especially in Georgia, where there is a very limited number of service providers who are here um, to be able to assist people with you know, mental health care, um, different types of counseling that people need, um, housing support. Um, but 
figuring out, right, like, what can I do to help connect you to, to those things? Um, and so Chicago was a great place in that way because there were just so many services available to people. Um, but at the end of the day, I think there are moments where I have to like reel myself back in to think about your job is as an attorney. And so limit yourself to that. I say that even though I'm sure my partner would disagree because I end up doing a lot of different things with people too. Because um, it's hard to just, you know. It's hard to say no, especially. Yeah. It's yeah. hard to say no, especially when there's something so urgent. It's like, oh my gosh, maybe if I can just throw in a yeah. little bit more time for this one. Exactly. And, and, it's, and it's common because everything is so urgent, everything is so rapid. And with this Trump administration and the Republicans and even some of the Democrats who are very much complicit in, in, uh, in the uh, escalation of arrest and deportations, it puts so little time to process. Everything is happening at once. You have to go into the legal, into the legal route. Okay, let's take a look at the loopholes. Let's really examine this very quickly before um, it gets before it gets uh, processed. So, what can you say about the current state of the deportation issues that are affecting the Asian Pacific? African and Latinx communities, and what effective ways can we do as regular people to support anti-deportation efforts, especially for folks who are facing deportation orders? Yeah, um, I think that's a question that a lot of folks are trying to figure out right now, too. Um, I would say that the current state is that everyone's getting picked up. There is very little discretion being exercised. Um, no due process in some cases yeah yeah, yeah. Um, it, it applies to everyone right there's no I think you know there's no like sympathetic story of a single mom with multiple kids or, or someone who has severe health issues um, nowadays you just see everyone and, then, and yeah I think it's like to your point they're deporting people so quickly um, and so it's, it's a hard and heavy time that said, I think this election year in particular um, provides a lot of opportunities. Um, you know, one of the strategies that people are utilizing uh, in, in individual immigration cases is just to sort of like hold, hold off on trying to do anything, right? Like waiting um, and dragging out their cases as much as they can just to get us to 2021 to see mm -hmm. whether the change in administration will do, you know, will be any different because um, that's going to be big for a lot of people. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, so I think election is important. I don't want to be cliche and tell people to vote, but definitely, like, stay engaged and, um, yeah, just pay attention to what's happening. I would say that as someone who still works on individual cases, um, being able to find support, uh, you know, you've seen sort of, like, GoFundMe pages yes. um, and people providing support um, to, for people to pay bond, right? or to assist people who are going through immigration proceedings by showing up to ICE. Um, I think those cases are still very important. Um, mm -hmm. I know that folks are tired, right? I think like every day you're hearing like a new story about like someone who's about to get deported. And so right. there's a lot of call, call to action that's happening. But I think like, you know, if folks who are not affected by the system is tired, just imagine how everyone else feels. Um, so I would say, you know, keep showing up in that way. Um, and then I think being able to build the, the network of support. I think um, like a few weeks ago, I was at a meeting where someone talked about, you know, 
I'm a social worker. Like, what can I do to help? And I just think like, there's so much, right? But we need a network of individuals who are doing different types of services um, or engaged in different ways, no matter like what industry you're in, to be able to connect with each other. Um, but I, but I think, you know, we're talking about organizing, right? And so what does it mean for folks to try to like organize themselves um, and have these larger conversations about what are the things that they can do in 2020 and 2021? Mm, yeah, I think, you know, for everyone uh, that's been involved with this work and who have been allies for the immigration movement and the uh, anti-ICE, it is a very anticlimactic time right now. It's a it's such a watershed moment for us with this election year that it could really change the fates of so many people under incarceration or under the threat yeah. of incarceration. I was in Boston recently. I was on a road trip and I was on my way to Ohio and I saw an ice van like in the middle of the highway. Mm -hmm. And I just, my heart just sank. Yeah. And I'm thinking to myself, gosh, what could they be doing now? You know? Who are they going to pull over in the middle of a highway? Mm -hmm. And it tells you the state yeah. that it's in. And I can't help but think of, you know, my friends who are undocumented, who are on DACA right now, who mm -hmm. uh, could possibly lose their protection very soon. Yeah. So there's so much at stake. And I think it's, I think it's also very important to think of even the smaller victories. I mean, there are times mm -hmm. when we see the release of, of um, folks who've been incarcerated because of community members calling and jamming the governor's phone lines, for example. Yeah. I know like the work of people in Tacoma, they have done mm -hmm. that for their own Cambodian community. Now, going back to our own community, mm -hmm. in the Vietnamese, Southeast Asian communities, we're seeing a lot of deportations yeah. among our community members and most of them are not undocumented. Mm -hmm. They have legal papers as visas, green card holders. And I was wondering if you wanted to touch up on that subject, why are they getting deported? And what tells me is that those are folks who are in their 30s, 40s, mm -hmm. 20s, and have been born in refugee camps. Yeah. Not Vietnam, not Cambodia, not Laos. They were born in Thailand. They were born in Malaysia during the refugee period. And so I was wondering if you were able to like shed some light into that. Yeah. Um, I would say for Southeast Asian Americans, um, oftentimes they're deported in two different ways. For the most part, it's because of some type of criminal issue. Right, so criminal past cr criminal convictions, um, as you mentioned, sometimes it's from like years ago that you know because they traveled outside the U.S. and now they're coming back in, um, they're being caught at the border. They run their name, this conviction comes up, and they triggered some kind of bar that prevents them from re-entering the United States. Um, this happens a lot with people, right? Like. You know, you get convicted for something stupid that you did when you were 18, and then now oh, yeah. you're 35 years old. With a family. Um, yeah, yeah. I actually had a case like that where um, this person was accompanying his mom to go back to Vietnam and, you know, didn't think anything of it, went for, for a couple of weeks, came back, and then was stopped um, at the airport for that. Um, and then it's for individuals who um, 
because of their past criminal convictions have been going to what are called ICE check-ins, um, you know, once a year, just to make sure that they were in good status, um, to say that they're staying out of trouble, right? Um, but now all of a sudden, um, the United States has pressured, uh, particularly Cambodia and Vietnam, to take back these individuals. Um, and so, yeah, all of a sudden, there are travel documents for you now, and so we can deport you. Um, and even though the criminal convictions like left them in the United States, um, some of them were able to get work permits to continue working. Um, there was a provision that at any time, if the United States was able to secure travel documents um, to deport people that they could. Um, yeah, so I think, you know, one of the, the first cases I worked on of a Cambodian refugee, um, just trying to wrap my head around what, what it would mean to, you know, immigrate as a refugee at a very young age to come to the United States, um, and then 30 years later, right, to be deported to a country that you haven't been in. And here's another, and here's another caveat. Mm -hmm. People um, who are dealing, who have always asked, well, why didn't they get their citizenship a long time ago? Mm -hmm. That would have solved that. Well, here's the thing. When there is a conviction, even if it's mm -hmm. a small, minor one, it gets in their record and yeah. it always is a roadblock to mm -hmm. getting citizenship. Yeah. So that alone, besides the cost, mm -hmm. is one of the main preventers of, you know, getting legal, getting full legalization. And it, it, it still gets me because there are some community members in our own, in our own community, that is, uh, that felt like, well, how, well, they cause trouble. They shouldn't yeah. be here. And I'm like thinking to myself, well, let's think about it. The refugee resettlement put us in communities that were economically poor and mm -hmm. without the resources and with our parents being forced to work 60, 70 hours just to pay rent and feed yeah. their families. And so, you know, when you're growing up in 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 the environment centered on violence and poverty, it it becomes very challenging. It's very difficult. And uh, mm -hmm. and so yes, we do make mistakes as youths, you know. Yeah. I don't think that's any other different I don't think it's any different. And then yet a few decades later, this comes up and they already have their families. Some have been married to American citizens. Many of them have been married mm -hmm. to American citizens, and yet they yeah. still get deported, and it still blows my mind to this day. I, I, I still get so frustrated when I start seeing uh, when they're rounding up groups mm -hmm. of our own community members getting ready for deportation for these reasons. So yeah. I, I kind of wonder to myself, what has the conversation been like with our own community? Because mm -hmm. talking about this particular issue is still very sensitive because there's yeah. a lot of shame uh, within the families uh, yeah. because their children had committed a crime mm -hmm. and that they had to serve time for, whether it's a fine or whether it's in uh, prison for, for however, how long. But how do you, have you had these in, uh, conversations with community members to talk about the deportations within our own community? Because it is oftentimes something that has not been talked about. I think it's starting to emerge because we're seeing more and more of our community members getting deported um, mm -hmm. on a daily basis. And it's hard to ignore that, but it is something that is starting to emerge. So how 
has the conversation been within the Vietnamese and other Southeast Asian communities that you've interacted with on this particular issue? Yeah, I, I think there's, there's still a lot of misconceptions within our community. Um, so a huge part of the conversation that I have with folks is just like demystifying some things and then unraveling some of that. Um, and, and I think what's difficult is the set of sort of criminal convictions and the criminal issues that would bar you from, um, you know, whatever immigration relief or being able to stay in the United States is very diff different from what people think of in terms of the, the criminal system. So there's a lot of people right, who will tell you, like, I know how it works, right? Like, I know how the criminal system works. You've been convicted of a very heinous crime and that's why they're deporting you. And that's not how this works, right? Um, so having those conversations with people to say, like, the things that you're watching on, like, Law and Order and, like, whatever other criminal shows, that's not the, the immigration system. The immigration system is actually less forgivable, right? And doesn't allow individuals to sort of ever rehabilitate from their crimes. Um, so you hear stories of people who've been convicted, who've been out for 30 years. People aren't hearing that, right? The way, the way that ICE and the way that Trump talks about these issues is that, well, you know, we captured someone who was convicted of murder. And so you're thinking like the worst things about people, even though that might not be the case, right? But they lie all the time. Um, so having very direct conversations in community spaces about those things, right? Like the things that you're hearing um, from the Trump administration, from ICE officials are just not true. But then even when you tell them the reality of it, they don't, they choose not to believe it too, right? Because then they think you're right. exaggerating or you're downplaying the severity of some of these issues. Um, and so, yeah, I think in the community spaces, my, my approach to it is just like, let me hear what is it that you think about it? And then let's just demystify it and like, you know, set folks correct on the way it actually gets played out um, and I think and I think it always helps to hear from personal experiences um, of folks who have been through the system um, you know there's a lot of folks in like Oakland and California uh, for like formerly incarcerated individuals who are Southeast Asians mm -hmm. um, able to speak directly about their experiences right and like what led to them being put into the deportation pipeline um, but yeah, I think what you had mentioned about even having the conversations first within the family is very difficult. Um, you know, these are just like really ugly truths about folks that families have a hard time hashing out um, to be able to confront. A lot of times, you know, when especially I think in a lot of like Asian American families, when bad things happen, we kind of just sweep it under the rug mm -hmm. and we don't have to talk about it again. Um, and so when folks are being picked up again um, for deportation, all of a sudden, these things that happened years ago are being dragged up um, and to be able to talk about that and confront it. Um, yeah, because I also think that in, in a lot of these cases, where they've been successful in stopping someone's deportation um, is when people have, gotten, have needed to go public with it, right? Mm -hmm. And in order to go public with why you deserve to stay in the United States, you have to talk about what happened in the past. Um, and so, yeah, to say that those are heavy conversations um, to be having within the family and then to be having in a community space, um, you know, that 
people oftentimes will judge you, right? Um, in my experience, though, I would say that when I talk to folks about the way that people are being targeted for deportation in a similar way that the um, that folks in Vietnam were being targeted for their political actions, people start making you know these connections of like, oh yeah, I see what you mean. You know that now that people are speaking up, ICE is doubling down mm-hmm. and deporting them even sooner. Similar to how you know when folks were being vocal against the government, they were then placed into labor camps, for example. Right. Um, yeah, and so I think it's it's just it's a struggle with the government, right? That there isn't there isn't room there to allow people to mm-hmm. rehabilitate. There isn't room there um, that allows you to to like stay connected to family. Like it it is a very like violent and graphic thing, right? To think about what it means to tear someone away from their family, um, especially the way that folks immigrated to the U.S., where you come in these like large family units. Um, so to have a family of like nine, eleven people, and that that one person is no longer allowed to stay here, um, I think those those personal stories and the family stories are it is probably like one of the few ways that the communities connect um, to sort of the experience of people who are facing deportation. Mm. So Van, as going into twenty twenty, uh, and as a person who identifies as a queer Vietnamese American woman. What is your relationship now with the with your community, and also what do you hope to continue doing uh, with this year and moving forward? Yeah, I think the I think the place for us to grow as a community is to be able to discuss the way in which our communities are criminalized. I know that you know oftentimes and racism that Asian Americans experience in the U.S. is oftentimes the other side of, crim- of um, being criminalized, um, right? I think there's sort of this like juxtaposition between black and brown communities and Asian communities. Um, I think there's a part to it where we have to say that that's actually not true, right? Asian American communities, low-income communities, Southeast Asian Americans are being criminalized in this way. Um, and so it's sort of like be open about that. Um, it's sort of like one aspect of it. And then I think the other is to say that there is a, a growing and expanding carceral system um, that is taking resources away from our families, right? Like services is a huge part of the conversation and the part of the experience, the refugee experience, also the Asian American experience. Um, yeah. You know, nowadays, we're talking about like all these terrible things that are happening in the immigration system. But yeah. One of the things that folks aren't, are not saying enough is, you know, the way that funding has been completely withdrawn from refugee services. And that speaks directly to at least like the Vietnamese American experience that I think folks could agree to, right? That we needed resources when folks were first immigrating to the United States. Those resources should still be there for refugees to come. You know, I think when, like, for example, when the Syrian refugee um, crisis was happening, I was expecting Vietnamese Americans to really, like, stand up in that moment. And I know that there was, like, a few, um, like, organizing movement and, like, activities out in California, right, where people were able to see just, like, boats of people who were, that were coming in um, and the way that they were being turned away in Europe 
connecting that to their own personal experience of when they were Vietnamese refugees, they're being turned mm -hmm. away um, from some of these countries. But I think, yeah, for me, the work is also about continuing to politicize our community. Um, I think what's great nowadays, um, what I'm seeing with young Vietnamese Americans in particular, um, is sort of a diversity of the way that we're looking at the Vietnam War, and then also using that um, as a part of our political story, right? Like these are the ways in which Vietnamese Americans are being politicized, um, not just as a result of Vietnam War, but everything that's happened since then. Because um, I think going back to what we were talking about earlier, you know, as much as I reflect on the Vietnam War and my family's experience, sometimes I also get tired of just talking about the war and then leaving it at that, right? Like, mm -hmm. I want to know what more, like, what is our story from here? And I think it has to be tied to what's happening in the U.S. politically in this moment, mm -hmm. right? To be able to draw from the experiences of our parents and grandparents and apply that to today's world. Um, and so I think a lot of young, like Southeast Asian Americans in particular, are making that connection where like, people are talking about U.S. imperialism and talking about how that connects to also racism in the United States. Um, but I think, yeah, that's, that's the sort of future of our community's work. Yeah, uh, thank you for bringing this up and thank you for summing it up uh, so beautifully because oftentimes uh, when we talk, when we say that we're Vietnamese, or if I'm say I'm Cambodian, mm -hmm. people reference back to the war and genocide. And like you said, it is very exhausting. It gets frustrating because it paints us in this narrative that you know we're this sad story mm -hmm. and that we are more than that uh, particular period. We certainly were well before the war and we certainly have been mm -hmm. well after it. And, and I think part of this, uh, the season really is to focus on our generation's work and how the involvement has happened from uh, the war to refugee resettlement to, um, I hate even seeing the word assimilation, uh, but but like our own stake in being in this country as um, people who have been born in America being U.S. citizens in that case. Uh, what is our, what is our stake in this? What are we doing yeah. to push the narratives evolving the narratives and making impact for our communities because back when we or back when our parents were you know living in our living in this country there weren't any other Vietnamese Americans that were advocating for us on a political level right but we're mm -hmm. seeing people being elected into office that look like us uh, yeah. we're seeing people who are in professions that 30 years ago 20 years ago didn't exist for people like us. So we're starting to see the, uh, the changing of the guard and that we are starting to have a stake in this country. So I, I do, it does give me hope in that sense, but also it, it shows that our stories will continue to evolve well after the war. But I, I look at that 1975 as that frame of reference. Mm -hmm. How did it all start for us and where yeah. has it gotten to us right now? So yeah, thank you so much for uh, sharing your story, sharing your experiences being an immigration attorney. I feel like this is a conversation that is so important to have because we hear these stories about uh, immigrants of all backgrounds getting uh, deported or about to be deported. Mm -hmm. And from an immigration attorney's lens, we want to figure out how does this happen? How can we be best uh, how can we best be supportive of 
community folks and their family members who are going through yeah. this. So I thank you for uh, bringing this uh, conversation in. I think it's super important and I'm very thankful of the work that you've been doing and the immigration attorneys everywhere across the U.S. who are really working day in, day out to uh, to uh, make sure that they are with their families. And even though the losses have been very difficult, I have also seen community members still reaching out to folks who have been deported. You know, there's like, I heard that there's some organizations. Yeah. I know Cambodia has the One Love uh, mm -hmm. group that reunites with other deportees uh, in Cambodia. So the story doesn't end once yeah. they leave America. It, it's still an ongoing story that people do need to be aware just because they're not there doesn't mean they're forgotten and that they um that we can't do anything about it i mean they're still here uh, mm -hmm. and we just have to make sure that we do our part to uh, to uh, advocate for other folks who are still going through this and uh, even after the losses that they're still thought of and mm -hmm. and uh, that there's an opportunity for um that connection to happen one day so yeah. yeah i really appreciate your time in this i really do and thank you so much and uh yeah i hope that and, and also one last question is are there any organizations any other plugs anything that we should know about uh for this year that people need to be aware about aware about except oh besides voting i mean obviously that's the big uh the big deal here is but anything on your end that you would like to share yeah i mean there are so many organizations doing great work. I, you know, I would definitely push for, I can't name them all, but the organizing yes. um, folks that are out there doing this work, um, I would say any way that folks can support them, you know, whether it's by donation or volunteer time, um, just staying engaged, right? I think what's important now is that when there are moments that we need to mobilize um, and for folks to come out, for folks to be ready for that. Um, and I think 2020 is like leaves an open door as to when that moment could call on, on, on all of us. Um, so I think it's important to just stay connected in that way. But I also want to say thank you. I feel like this was a very like holistic interview on <laughs> different aspects, which, which I appreciate, right? Because we're not just one dimensional people. Um, so I really enjoyed being able to share my family's story um, and just also connected to what I'm doing today because I, I do think so much of my own personal experiences um, has shaped, you know, the direction and the way my approach to the work itself too, um, which I think is equally important. Um, one of the things that, that I would end by saying that, you know, we, I've talked a lot about services, but, you know, we don't even get to touch on just the quality of services that our, our community needs. Um, which I think is also important and the quality is going to come from like the relationship um, that we build with each other also and so the more that we can just be open and talk about these things um, and you know just like practice a sense of compassion and understanding uh, for individuals who are experiencing a very difficult political time but personal time for themselves um, yeah those are the things I would want to leave there yeah, thank you again for summing it up and best of luck to you uh, this yeah. year. And also take good care of yourself in the process thank too. You. And, and really thank you for fighting for all of our communities and for really giving us an insight about the work that you're doing. So thank you again. And we yeah. will talk again. I hope to see you in Chicago uh, again someday yeah. soon. I'd love to meet up with you and your mom soon. All right. Take care, Yvonne. Bye-bye. Bye.
all for today thank you for listening and be on the lookout for future episodes so follow me on the bunby chronicles on facebook or you can follow me on instagram at bunby underscore chronicles thank you again and looking forward to sharing more with you Mm -hmm.